I think anybody working in the world today has to think about the ramifications of the work that they're doing. Because if you're not doing good, you're doing bad. (laughs) Today's episode is one of those full circle moments. Well, at least for me. Today's guest had me on her podcast years ago, promoting our Design for Good projects that we're doing at Rule 29. And ever since then, she's been a great advocate and supporter of the things that we've done. Now, what was amazing about that is her show, Design Matters, is an award-winning podcast. In fact, it was the world's first podcast about design, and it's known for its wide-ranging conversations with not only designers, but writers, artists, curators, musicians, and other prominent figures in contemporary thought. Additionally, Debbie is an author and teacher, co-curator of the online home and print magazine, artist, and a global speaker. And on this episode of Design Of, where we talk about the extraordinary things that happen around us every day and the people behind them, you get to meet one such extraordinary person. I'm your host, Justin Ahrens. Get ready to hear Debbie Millman's story, where we talk about her podcast and work, relationships, and the pain that has influenced our lives. Enjoy the show. Debbie, welcome to the show. So where do I find you today? It looks like you're in your Design Matters magical booth. Is that it? (laughs) Yes, I am in my studio here at the School of Visual Arts in my master's in branding program where I have a little studio where I do most of my podcasts and wanted the sound to be good. So I figured I'd come in here and talk to you from here. Well, thank you for that. So I want to start with a question I was thinking about today. I was like, does Debbie prefer to be the interviewer or the interviewee? (laughs) I much prefer to be the interviewer. (laughs) (laughs) But I would assume with all of the great success of the show and other things you're doing, you probably get interviewed a lot. Well, I do get a lot of invitations from new podcasters. And because so many people were so kind to me at the beginning of my doing the show 18 years ago, when people didn't even know what a podcast was, I try to be as nice as I possibly can and do as many as I can for the young podcasters and friends, of course. But generally, unless I'm promoting something, I really don't enjoy talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this is going to be an awesome show then since it's all about you. Well, I was thinking about when we first met and man, the world was so different. Uh, when did, what year was it that we first met, Justin? I was trying to nail it down. I know it was before your show. So okay. I think it was wow. early, early 2000s. I mean, your show started in 2005-ish, right? Yes, February okay. 2005. So I think it was either right before then at an AIGA thing, maybe in New York or something. I just I just couldn't remember. Yeah, it was probably an AIGA thing because I started getting involved with AIGA, I want to say 1998. I think that's when my membership yeah. card says. <laughs> yeah. AIGA is a national professional organization for design, representing over 25,000 of the most innovative and creative minds in the field. Debbie and I have been both active members and AIJ speakers. We served on their board, which is one of the places I had the pleasure to get to know Debbie better. This organization was a valuable place for me to connect with so many of the friends and professionals uh, that really have guided my career and that I'm still in touch with today. So when you started your show, 
Was it a radio show? Or? Yes, it was okay. an online radio show for a then fledgling radio network called online radio network called Voice America, which is different from Voice of America, not even remotely related. That of is very, very distinctive. So Voice America was a business network. They had invited me to do a show in late 2004. And I thought they were offering me a job, but they weren't. They were offering me an opportunity to pay them to produce a sort of vanity <laughs> show. But I was so desperate at that time to go back to some of the non-commercial creative projects that I had been doing prior to working in branding that I signed on thinking that maybe it could be somewhat of a hybrid branding slash design slash creative project. And I did it for four years on Voice America. So I did 100 episodes. Wow. I and didn't know it was that long. Yeah, four years, 2005 to 2009. And then Bill Drentel, the late, great Bill Drentel invited me to bring the show mm -hmm. to Design Observer. And that was hugely important to me. He gave me a proviso though. <laughs> I had to get better sound quality. And so I didn't know how to do that. And he introduced me to Curtis Fox, who's my producer. And he's been my producer ever since. So since wow. 2009, so 14 years as my producer, and he makes the show sound like what it sounds like. Yeah, and, so good. Uh, and then I guess about this point, I want to say just right at the beginning of COVID. So I want to say like three years ago, I officially joined the TED Audio Collective which means that I'm part of a group of like-minded podcasters that Ted helps promote and amplify, but they don't own the show. They just help me grow the show. I still am the sole owner. That's so exciting. What made you qualified or why did they, why did they reach out to you in the first place? Was it just them trying to find someone to talk about creative brands or how did that even initial invitation happen? Well, I suspect that it came, it was a cold call that I suspect came through my writing at Speak Up because that was really the only thing that would have made me remotely noteworthy. Uh, and so I, I got this call from a man named Brian Travis and he was interested in my doing a show about branding because it was the business network. But I was not interested in doing that because the sole reason I wanted to do this was to try to make something creative again that wasn't as commercial as any of the work that I was doing in branding. And I wanted it to be about design. And he was very skeptical that that would be interesting or get any kind of significant audience. And he asked me to pitch an idea for what the show, what a guest on the show could, who could be, what they could talk about and so forth. And if you go back in time, one of the most popular television shows at that time was The Apprentice. And the night before he asked me this question, my client had been on The Apprentice representing Pepsi Cola wow. because the, the, candidates on The Apprentice or the players were tasked with redesigning Pepsi Edge, <laughs> which oh, wow. brands had designed. And so I pitched my friend Lisa Francella as a possible guest. She ultimately did come on the show as a guest, and they were so impressed by 
my knowing somebody at PepsiCo that they then agreed to let me do the show about design. Mm. The, even that whole apprentice thing is just so takes a different uh, uh, spin. I'm going to put this question out here and we can break it up if it's too large. But having had the pleasure to know you for so long and watching so many amazing things happen in your life, how has the show helped you in the last 18 years personally and professionally? Well, personally, there's so many different ways I can answer that. My gosh, I'm just like it's all popping. No, I was I was I was thinking about this question this morning and I'm just like, wow, the world has changed so much. Yeah. Debbie has changed so much. Yeah, yeah. And the I, and the show has kind of been the constant, it feels like. Yeah. I mean, there's so many ways that I could answer that. Well, first and foremost, that the show was the Trojan horse into meeting my wife. <laughs> and then I asked her to be on the show. And initially she said yes. And then she said no. And then we had a correspondence. And then I was able to actually meet her through Ashley Ford, who knew me because of the show and yeah. vouched for me with her. Okay, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't skip over that on me, Debbie. So is that where you met Roxanne for the first time personally? It was on your show? No. no. Oh, okay. Okay. What happened okay. was I I wrote to Roxanne after Hunger came out because I read Hunger and felt like I could have been reading my diaries, although not nearly as well written, just in terms of how she was talking about trauma and mm. grief and sadness and, and persistence. And just that book is one of the greatest books ever written as far as I'm concerned. And I wrote to her asking her to be on the show after the book came out. And she said, yes. And then she asked me to be in touch with her publicist at HarperCollins to schedule it. And I did. I forwarded that email to her publicist and then her publicist never got back to me. And then I wrote again, crickets. Then I wrote again, crickets. Then I wrote again, I wrote four times. And on the fourth time I got a bounce back that she was no longer at the company. At which point I think several months had gone by. Yeah. I then took that entire thread, forwarded it to Roxanne and said, I've been trying to reach Amanda. She's hasn't responded. Now she's left. Anyway, I can schedule it with you directly. At which point she said, no. She <laughs> <laughs> was exhausted from all the book touring and all the talking and didn't want to do it anymore. And that's Roxanne, very blunt, very straightforward, says what yeah. she means, means what she says, everything she says is the truth. So at that point, I kind of gave up, but I still was following her on Twitter. I was still doing all kinds of things to try to get her attention. I, whenever she wrote about somebody that she thought was smart or had written something that she thought was meaningful, I would try to get them on the show because <laughs> then I thought maybe she'd notice that, you know, we had the same taste. I love this so much. <laughs> <laughs> and then in June of 2018, so a good year and a half after this all began, or, you know, a year, a good year, I was doing a spoken word event with Timothy Goodman at the School of Visual Arts Theater. And after I love the, him, by the way. 
Oh my God. And his memoir, I mean, his graphic memoir now, it's remarkable. It's so great. Everybody please buy it. Timothy Goodman is best known for his design and illustration for brands like, I don't know, you might've heard a couple of these, you know, Apple, Airbnb, Google, Sony. His work has been featured in publications as well, like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal and Wired. His recent book, which is wonderful, I Always Think It's Forever, is available wherever books are sold. And he also co-authored the viral book, 40 Days of Dating with Jessica Walsh. For more on Tim, go to tgoodman.com. After the event, because my my apartment is around the corner from that theater, I, I just invited everybody that was performing in this little cadre of, of Timothy's friends and, and colleagues back to my place for some pizza and some wine. And Ashley Ford was performing that day as well. She was the closing act. And we started talking and she started talking about her, her mentor, Roxanne. And I was like, mentor? Wait a second. Writer? <laughs> Could that be Roxanne Gay? And I asked her and she said, yes. And I blurted out, Justin, I just blurted out, um, oh my God, I have such a crush on her. And she looked at me like, oh really, Debbie? With that gorgeous velvety voice she has. Yeah. She raised a little eyebrow. It was very, very um, enigmatic. And <laughs> I, I, I said, but I think she has a person. Like I'm always reading about her person. She has this person. And she said, well, there might be an opportunity. There might be a window. (laughs) They had just broken up. And so. By the way, at this point, this is the greatest part of your life. (laughs) Right? Yes. 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 Like more wine. Yeah. Uh, And I asked Ashley if she'd put in a good word for me. At which point I wrote Roxanne again, because Ashley said yes. And I didn't ask her to be on the show. I asked her if she'd go on a proper date with me. Oh. And she wrote back, sure. (laughs) Okay, so hold on. Let's talk about this. Sure is one of those words that I don't love because it's so broad in interpretation. So how did you take that? It's like the word interesting. It's not a good word. Right, right. And so, but she didn't say when or how. And I didn't want to annoy her with follow-up questions. I was really intimidated by her and didn't feel that. I just felt so flimsy and and unimportant and that ultimately she would hate me, but I really wanted to try. And so I didn't, I didn't say when or where or how, but I was fo- still following her on Twitter. And for anybody that, that follows Roxanne on Twitter, you know that she's very direct and doesn't take yeah. any shit from anyone. And so one day she was, one day somebody had written her like, hey, Roxanne, when are you coming to Peoria? And she responded, my schedule is on my website. <laughs> I was like, what? I would like run to the, like, <laughs> go to her website, see that she's going to be in New York in that October, the coming October. And so I wrote to her and I said, oh, well, I, I responded to the email and said, I see that you're going to be in October in New York um, doing an event at Symphony Space. Would you like to have a drink before or after. And she said, let's do it after. And then sort of rest is history. Oh, thank you for sharing the story with me. That's so wonderful. Now, I always thought Roxanne was in New York. Was she, is she, was she a West Coaster? Where was she? 
she um, at the time was still commuting back and forth between Indiana, where she was teaching at Purdue, and Los okay. Angeles, where she had a had her house. She had just bought a house about a week or so before we actually went on our first date, and so. We went on that first date. I, I wasn't sure she was very cagey about where and when beyond the meeting at Symphony Space. But ultimately, we did go out afterward and had a really, really great first date. We had our sec. We made our second date on the first date. So I was super excited about that. Yeah, My that's, best that's a win. Gordon knew that I was going on this date and I left. Uh, we We had dinner in Midtown and I left and it was. I was like walking on air and mm -hmm. called he and was like, get Moses on the phone, her husband. And like, was like pretty much crying about how great the date was and went to LA the following week for Adobe max. And we had our second date, but the day of she canceled. So I, I cry. I was crying in my room called Dee Dee. I'm like, she can't. <laughs> <laughs> and turns out she had some septic problem with her plumbing and, then an hour later, she wrote me back and said, actually, I think things are going to be okay. Would would you still be available? So we ended up having that second date. And yeah, by by our third date, our third date was a, like almost a month later because of our schedules and yeah. in Boston because we couldn't find a Like she was traveling, I was traveling. We ended up meeting in Boston and um, we've been together ever since. Oh, that is the best. Thanks for sharing that with me. I, I'm... I'm blown away by her writing and her work. And it's funny that you say that about her directness because when I saw you guys, I think at Howl last year, you introduced me and she's like, hey, great to meet you. <laughs> and I just was like, all right. Actually, that's really nice that she said yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, that was great. I, she's, I appreciate she's it. Very, she's very cryptic on the outside, but very sensitive and articulate and and wonderful on the inside so just yeah well you can see you can feel that in her writing and yeah. it's really beautiful i'm not going to ask you the favorite episode questions that feels really lazy but i am curious which episode and this is again maybe a little bit unfair but what made the biggest impression like when you were done you're just like you're either you were your mind was blown or or however you want to answer that like yeah I mean, there's so many, there's so many, so many that I could point to. I guess one of the the big turning points for me was interviewing Tim Ferriss, who is one of the most kind-hearted, generous humans on the planet. And then he interviewed me on his show and that kind of exploded my show and that bump in listeners has never gone away. So that's sort of a big thing. And then I was contacted by, this is very funny, I was contacted by the publicist of Hamilton, the musical, yeah, through Facebook of all things, about the director, Tommy Kale, being a fan of the show and wanting to come on it. But I didn't know that you could get direct messages from strangers on Facebook and didn't know that it didn't even come into my mailbox until one day, six months later, I looked at <laughs> I looked at this weird number on my Facebook page, clicked into it, and then saw all these emails from people that I didn't know 
most of whom were interested in being on the show, but saw, you know, this message from Tommy Kale's PR yeah. people. And then ended up just calling them because I was so humiliated that I hadn't seen it. And the, the guy was super nice. He's like, oh, yeah, he like really loves the show. I'd love to come on. But, you know, now he's opening Hamilton in London. This was right when Hamilton first came out. Oh, wow. Now he's using Hamilton in London and then he's doing it in L.A. And da, da, da. so, you know, like maybe in the in the spring, <laughs> you know, it was like six months away. And I followed up and lo and behold, I ended up interviewing Tommy. And he's just also one of the great humans of the world. Every time I interview Seth Godin, I learn something about him, myself and the world. Mm. Um, of course, interviewing Ashley, <laughs> which yeah. came out of the podcast. I just interviewed Kirsten Bangsness. She is one of the stars of the TV show Criminal Minds. And I've been watching that show for 15 years. And to like, I, we, I interviewed her face to face. And, oh, wow. And we sort of, I think we might be coming friends. I don't know. Like, we're dating. <laughs> which, and pardon me, I don't remember which character is she at Criminal Minds? Penelope Garcia. Oh, I love her. I know. I know. I know. How She's, how similar is she to that character in real life? Which is, is she bubbly like that? Is she completely opposite? Or you know, I I I would say that her characters would live in the same neighborhood, but not the same house. Sure, no, that's great. She's she's definitely as smart, and I think she's definitely as charismatic, but as as a person face to face. And also now seeing her in other things, I went to see a play of hers in L.A. that she was starring in, which was just genius. Um, believe it or not, she played Donald Trump in this play. And when she came out on stage, I didn't think it was her. Like, I looked at Roxanne and I'm like, could that be Kirsten? And I, her, her Donald Trump is better than any we've ever seen on Saturday Night Live. Like, Saturday Night Live needs to bring her on the show so she could do that impersonation. Wow. It's, Remarkable. And she does it for two hours. It's a play. It's called Nimrod. It's just incredible. But in any case, so so like there are things like that that, that yeah. happen that are just, you know, kind of magical. Yeah, well, I mean, you've interviewed so many big names. I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm about to interview someone, I get super nervous. Was there a couple of people that really had you bound up nervous energy beforehand? I get nervous before most shows. Yesterday I interviewed Susanna Hoffs, one of the co-founders of the band The Bangles. She has a book coming out in April and it's really good. And I interviewed her and I whenever I'm really nervous, I flub my intro. So, you know, my I have a producer, so it's edited, but it's really embarrassing when you flub your intro and then have to redo it. And I knew that it was terrible. And I think Curtis knows me well enough now to just say, let's to think. And we sort of telepathically communicate. I think at this point, I'll redo it. I'll do a retake after, after she leaves. Cause it's yeah. just so, so humiliating. But yeah, so I, I flubbed, I always flub intros when I'm super nervous. Actually, we kept that flub in when I interviewed Marina Abramovich, the performance artist, cause I was so nervous. I flubbed and she she was like, okay, let's stop. Let's breathe, breathe. So and good. Kept that in because it was just so great. But yeah, I get nervous. I'm always nervous before a show because I just feel like I owe whoever I'm interviewing 
like the ultimate respect in doing a good interview. And Absolutely. so that that just stays with me no matter what or who. So let's put it out there. Just go ahead and put it out there. Who would you love to interview? Oh my goodness. Um, Neil Gaiman, Michelle Obama, Rachel Maddow, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, which I'm trying, I'm working on that. Oh, he would, you guys would crush it together. I hope, I would, I would like to think so. Yeah. Hillary and or Chelsea Clinton. Uh, it's a good start. Yeah, that's a great start. And I was giggling this morning. I was, as I was going through what I was going to talk to you about, I was just like, no one, Debbie, she has, she has a pretty good list of uh, people out there. So, you know, you wrote one of your books and I, I love this. You don't know this yet. This is one of the key quotes I have and and some that I look at on a regular basis when I'm just thinking about gratitude. But you said, if you perceive the universe as being a universe of abundance, then it will be. If you think of the universe as one of scarcity, then it will be. In Justin, your- Justin, I have to burst your bubble. Did you not say that? But it was said to me. Oh. By Milton Glaser. Well, that makes it even more magical to be quite I honest. Know. Yeah. <laughs> All respect to you, but I, I read that in one of your design books, but Yeah. Ah. Oh, God bless Milton. Right? Uh, completely. My point for sharing that with you is I completely agree with that quote, but in your in your interviews of the people that you've met over all the years, do you find the people that you interview more in, in the abundance or scarcity place? Well, I do think that it's a very kind of controlled set of people that we're talking about. They're people that are incredibly prolific, whether it be design, art, music, performance, even science, writing. So they're people that are in the throes of making things on a regular basis. And I think when you do that, innately, you're coming from a world that you perceive as abundant because of all your many ideas that you express. So I don't know that it's necessarily a fair group to analyze in terms of representing all the people in the world because they're a very unique, highly creative group of people. What I can tell you is very few people that I've interviewed sort of rest on those laurels. There's only a few that I've interviewed, and those tend to be old, cis, hetero, white men. <laughs> <laughs> and there's only less than a handful. Right. Yeah, and I ask that largely because I think there's this this arc at some level right that you can tweak based on your outlook on life where you can be pretty prolific in the scarcity sense right because you are you have this drive to achieve x y and z that you have kind of built in your in the narrative that you're telling yourself and then you have others who who really whether that's learned or um they just kind of naturally lean into it of creating in a space of abundance. And yeah, I, um, as, as I, what I what I wanted to to say in in sort of that that control group, so to speak, is while most of them I would say are coming from this place of abundance, 
when I was talking about the exception, I wasn't talking about those specific people being seeing the world through through a lens of scarcity. It was more that aside from this very small handful of of white older dudes, everybody else was still thinking about how good the next thing they were going to make would be. So they weren't resting on their laurels. They weren't they weren't coming from a place of they might still be coming from a place of abundance and having a lot of ideas, but they were still hoping that the next work that they made would be better than the work that they'd already created. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's so there was no arrogance. There was right. no arrogance. There was no entitlement. There was no, I expect this to be great just because of the sheer virtue of, you know, so-and-so making it. Right. Or my past history yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So let, let's talk about kindness. This is something that I'm, a project that I'm working on. And I, I when I was thinking about you, you've been one of the most giving people in my in my career that both I've been able to meet and experience. I've been thinking a lot just to kind of set this question up of where some of that comes from, like our perspective and our, and our acting out of, of that, because, you know, we have a choice every day of how we're going to approach X, Y, Z situation. So my perception of you and my experience with you has been one of, of just that kindness to me and in my career and people around me. Is that something that came from, your experience or lack of things or paying it forward? How would you describe your approach and how you deal with people? I just deal with people the way I would like to be dealt with. I, you know, I'm in terms of any generosity, it's mostly just paying back how people have been to me. You know, people like Stephen Heller, people like Milton Glaser, Emily Oberman, Paula Scher, Michael Beirut, you know, these are all people when they didn't have to be were super kind and super generous, super welcoming. I still don't even know exactly why, but I'm really, really grateful. I mean, 25 years ago Or 20 years ago, even, you know, Michael Beirut, I remember he, I met him at, at one of the AIGA conferences and I was sitting next to him and I was at a, at a dinner and I was so nervous and he was so kind and so lovely. And then after, and he had no reason to be, you know, I hadn't started the show at that point. You know, it wasn't like he was angling for an interview. Not that anybody was angling for an interview back in 2005. I was only really begging people. <laughs> and he wrote me a letter, which I still have. Mm. Um, we've been talking about hip hop and during that dinner. And he had been doing some work on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I had spent at that point 10 years working with Hot 97 the radio station in New York that was the first hip hop radio station. And after after the dinner, a couple of days later, I got a note, a, a typed note in the mail from Michael saying how much he enjoyed our dinner. And he had looked into the work that I had done at Hot 97 and he was complimentary and like, he didn't have to do that. I still have that letter. But oh, I just, so cool. You know, so it's like people like that, that were 
just kind and generous and open that, you know, you have to be that way if somebody's like that to you. Uh, no, I, I agree, of course, 100%. But as you know, you've experienced the opposite, I'm sure, enough. But I will oh, say yeah. about, about Michael Beirut that is lovely is I've probably, I don't know, maybe a half dozen times, you know, experienced him in a small setting. And I can tell you every single time I walk away and I'm like, I cannot wait to the next time I'm hanging out with Michael Beirut. Absolutely. He's just that guy. He is not only one of the most talented graphic designers living today of the 20th and 21st century, but he's also the smartest and the kindest. Hmm. And he's from Cleveland. So, you know, that's, <laughs> yes. that's another thing. Well, Debbie, outside of your show, where do you find the most joy or energy? Is it in your writing or traveling or creating? Like, what's this? What's your space now that you really find the most energy and joy in? Oh, that's a tough question. I, I, I like to do a lot of different things, and I've always been that way. When I was in junior high school and high school and college, I was always doing multiple things at once. And I've just always had that desire as as now, you know, an older person. But so, you know, for a very long time, I was very hard at work in corporate America, building a branding consultancy. I still do work in branding as a practitioner, but it's primarily pro bono or working for organizations that I think are doing work to change the world. So I do maybe one or two projects a year that in that vein, but no more than that. I still run my graduate program in branding at the School of Visual Arts, which is where I am right now. And I, I still mostly get a lot of joy doing that. <laughs> it's a little, it's been challenging <laughs> over the last couple of years with COVID and uh, now we very, very thankfully have a hybrid program. So I have two cohorts of students, one that's online so they can take it anywhere in the world and then a cohort of students on site. So that's made it a lot easier, a lot less stressful. One of the things that I'm enjoying doing more and more and more and more are more creative projects. For example, last year I created an installation at the Museum of Broadway I created wallpaper for a permanent exhibit that they will have in the museum, which opened last year, celebrating the many, many people who lost their lives during the AIDS crisis mm. in the Broadway community. And so I hand drew 500 names as this art installation. And I would say that that's one of the projects that's given me the greatest amount of pride and joy to have created. And so projects like that, I hope to get more of. That's amazing. And how long did that? It took a year. Wow. <laughs> but it took a year because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So now I know. <laughs> so I was doing, I was designing these and creating these names on two walls, nine by 13 feet and nine by 17 feet. And so I had to figure out how to do that and create these names and, and be able to digitize it in a way 
that would hold the resolution in such a large setting. And so I ended up having to do it four times. One time because I got the dimensions wrong in my ratios. <laughs> One time because I started with the bigger wall and started with the A's on the bigger wall, but the turns out the bigger wall was going to, the, the smaller wall was going to be on the left side. And so I had to redo everything because there was no way to proportionalize the, what I had already done to fit a nine by 13 wall that was now nine by, a nine by 17 wall that was now nine by 13. Uh, and then two other times because of just mistakes that I'd made. So I was doing this basically all the time. I remember Roxanne and I were going to an event that we were in together in North Carolina. And I was so far behind on my deadline. I was like drawing in the car. <laughs> wow. And then you know, every time, the first three times when I realized that I'd have to start over by the fourth time, like Roxanne cried because of how hard <laughs> I had been. She couldn't believe that I had to start over yet again. Oh. But what I can tell you is that I'm really, 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 really glad that I didn't try to fix those other three attempts because the fourth attempt did come out as perfect as I could have hoped. Awesome. And I'm super proud of that work. And it'll be wow. up, I hope, forever in the Museum of Broadway. That's so cool. Well, those three previous ones were a gift. I guess, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we first connected, you know, m more deeply around this concept of design for good or really creating projects or, or leading others in making impact. Over the last couple of years, at least for me, it's it's been harder to do or I've let myself think it's been harder to do. And so now that life is kind of opening up and I'm getting more and more excited about engaging with that. How do you feel, and this could either be from a leadership perspective or for design perspective, you know, do you still feel the weight um, and or the impact of that in today's world of how we can as creatives or creative leaders really help shift perspective and make impact? Well, I think we have to, I, and I don't think it's just designers. I think anybody working in the world today has to think about the ramifications of the work that they're doing. Because if you're not doing good, you're doing bad. <laughs> yeah. So I feel that is a requirement. And, and one of the interesting things that I've found in teaching now is that that is also table stakes for the students. And I'm talking about undergrads and grads. I teach both. And that just seems to be part of the fabric of the way they think. They think about what they want to do. They're, they're evaluating what their possibilities are, including the notion of how does this impact the planet? How does this impact people? How fair and equitable is this? Um, how racially diverse is this? And and I think that's what's giving me a, a modicum of hope about the future. You know, my generation, I'm, I'm on the very tail end of the baby boomers, really screwed things up for the generations that have followed. Mm. And the hope that I have is 
in in the defiance that these younger people now have in really vehemently being opposed to so much of what we created. Although I am still very nervous about how long that's going to take from a political point of view. Yeah. But but I do feel that that is something that we have to consider in every aspect of our lives now. Because I, as I said, if we're not doing good, we're doing bad. Well, it's interesting you say that. I, I took my son, I drove him back to college this weekend. And he's not sure he's going to Illinois State. He was he was going to go there to be a teacher, and then he's no longer wants to be a teacher. He was the that really the generation that had COVID the most. So COVID is really in his particular class. It's just been really challenging, right? How they experienced the last two years of high school and and or the first year of college. And what I love, David, what you said is it is table stakes. Like he's talking about what he wants to do, but he's not even concerned about a salary, right? I mean, of course he wants to get paid, but he's like, dad, I want to have some sort of impact, but also enjoy what I'm doing in a way that is really creating value in the world. If you could do something over, or if you could tell Debbie, whatever years ago, right? Something to shift, you know, I thought about this particularly for you based on some conversations we had, what would you what would you say or or what year would you go back I would go back to a conversation that I had with my mother when I was 8 years old and we were living on Staten Island and my parents were fighting mm. and they'd been fighting a lot and I was really scared and this was 1968 or 1969. And I was in bed and I was scared. And I was telling my mother I was scared that they were going to get divorced. And she said, oh, don't worry. It takes, it takes years to get divorced, which was an a weird answer in retrospect, but it comforted me because it felt like that wasn't imminent. And knowing what I know now, I would say, do not under any circumstances divorce your husband, my father, because you're both going to end up getting remarried to people that are way worse. So figure your shit out. <laughs> with love mom figure your no, shit out I would I would I'd be like figure your shit out because you're both going to make decisions after this that are going to ruin your lives mm. in some ways so whatever you're trying to get away from is in yourself and not in each other so figure that shit out because every decision you make after this for the most part is going to be really bad yeah. And how does that impacted you? Like that advice, like is how has that impacted you from then to here? Well, it would have prevented me from undergoing tremendous sexual abuse from her second husband. Mm. Um, 
but it my brother wouldn't have been tortured by him he you know there's so many so many it's just a ripple effect the positive ripple effect yeah well i'm gonna have to figure out how to handle that respectfully um i had had, it wonderfully yeah i had forgotten that i had forgotten that story i apologize no why Um, apologizing i that you know it's a it was a it's a really good question i hadn't you know ordinarily i would have said something about doing something during that period of time where things were the darkest in my life but it's an it's a new answer to a question that i think is important for me to also think about Hmm. That's good. And equal, I, I will share with you. So equally, when I was young, I was in a very similar situation. And I wish I would have, I wish I could tell myself to have reached out to others for support, instead of just keeping it all right. Well, we're also of an age where we didn't know, like, I, I'm sure you didn't know that it was happening to anyone else in the world. You know, when you're that young, you don't know about these things. You don't know that these are th- things that are rampant in our world. You think it's yeah. just because of you or something you did or something that you caused or something that no one will understand or believe. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you. What would you say? So what would you tell yourself? What Where would you go back? I would go back and tell myself during that time to be more brave and be more honest. Because the reason I asked that question about that to you is I feel in hindsight, I've gone back in that trauma. Although, you know, trauma has this weird thing, right? It can actually produce good things in hindsight, right? It really motivated me to be ambitious and to build a career and all that sort of thing. On the flip side, I also did it in an unhealthy way. And I'm grappling with that, right? Is oh, it, well, I'm grappling with the fact that you know. How um, did you do it in an unhealthy way? I didn't realize that a lot of the things that I did were just was just selfish, and I could have still done those things and and been ambitious and done the things, but really realized. I had this I had this fiction in my mind that for me to be better than I need to do these things at any cost and not realizing the cost that were that were sacrificed right yeah. and I'm grateful actually for a lot of the work that I started doing I shared this with you years ago when I went to Africa and I realized that my whole worldview was wrong and I'm so grateful for that and so, and I'm also grateful for that time, right? Because it got me to where I was. And, and now there's, I read somewhere about, instead of worrying about going back and starting a new, write a new ending, right? And so that's really where my focus these days, both in my work and professionally or personally. So, yeah. Thanks for asking me that because I wasn't ready to share that with you. So thank you. My pleasure. Sorry if I made you feel in any way uncomfortable. Not at all. I'm talking to a friend and and I appreciate it. And quite honestly, these are the kind of things that people need to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Well, Debbie, thank you for giving me some time today. I can't wait to see you in person. I hope you just have a wonderful day. 
Thank you. You too. I love talking to you. I always love talking to you. You are an extraordinary human being. Aw, thanks, my friend. Thank you, Debbie, for giving me time, but more importantly, promoting so many incredible creatives and exploring life, design, and love in your work. For more on Debbie and her writing, art, and podcast, go to DebbieMillman.com. I also want to thank Sleeping At Last for providing our show's soundtrack. For more on Sleeping At Last music, go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping At Last wherever you get your music from. To Design Of's audio engineer, Steve Wick, who loved this episode so much and made him ask himself, is he for goodness or badness? The most important decision you can make right now is what do you stand for, Danny? <clears throat> goodness or badness? I want to be good. Good. <laughs> How about a fresca? I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Tell others about our show on your social of choice and stay tuned for more of season nine coming soon. Please follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast and check our site out at rule29.com forward slash Design of Podcast. See you next episode.